Welcome to the How We Treat Colon and Rectal Cancer podcast, presented by the Brigham and Women's Hospital and the Dana-Farber in Boston. Join us as we review some of the more complicated colon and rectal cancer cases and discuss the treatment decisions with leading medical experts in the colorectal cancer field. Good afternoon, Jeff. We have a great episode again this week. We have Jim Fleshman, who visited from Baylor University campus in Dallas. He talks about his recent trial of laparoscopic versus open surgery for rectal cancer. Yeah, I mean, I think that's such an important issue since after the trials of colon cancer with laparoscopic versus open, it was assumed rectal was going to be exactly the same, and it really is a reflection that trials are necessary to study new technologies. Yeah, Jim will talk about how it got started, how he brainstormed, and how he worked with others to get it going. And also, after uh, Jim's interview, we have a question from a listener, and we'll answer that and, and discuss how to screen people and whether there are substitutes for colonoscopy. In, in patients with Lynn syndrome. Correct, exactly. So, Jim, first I want to congratulate you on starting and completing open versus laparoscopic rectal cancer trial. And I want you to let us know how much energy and how much time it took to get that trial off the ground. Well, first of all, thank you very much for the opportunity to visit the Brigham. I mean, this is an honor for me, and uh, it's a pleasure. And you've got a great group of residents and fellows and quality of the cases were outstanding. You know, the trial itself, we started talking about this during the cost trial. So when we finished the cost trial and published the final results in 2000 and showed that colon uh, cancer could be treated open or laparoscopically, we all felt like the next step was rectal cancer. Uh, But we already had a basic principle we built on Heidi Nelson's uh, protocol of how we would do this with credentialing. We had a group of people who were interested in it already and we would have meetings at every ASCRS or every college uh, to talk about how we're going to do this trial. So while it was a long part of my life, everybody else had the same enthusiasm and investment and you can remember sitting in those rooms with with the discussion between Larry Whalen and you and me and yeah. John Marks and you know our steering committee was already built and put together. So from 2000 to 2008, every time ACASOG had a, a meeting, all the surgeons showed up and we would discuss that. And the disappointing part of it was that we just really didn't know how to get traction going forward because every time Heidi would take it to the NIH or someplace else, they would say, no, we don't want a surgical trial. Well, I think the cost study really showed that we could get an answer as a group of surgeons. I felt pretty sure we could do rectal cancer. Finally, in 2008, when it really took hold, we did it through CTEP clinical trials evaluation program, and we um, didn't have an R01 status to it, but they gave us the $3 million 
based on the fact that we had credentialed surgeons, we had a solid group of people who had a track record, uh, that we were asking a pertinent question at the time because the only data, randomized data, was out of the UK MRC trial. And that showed that there might be a problem with uh, rectal cancer and laparoscopy. David Dietz, when he was at uh, WashU with me, uh, took the trial several times when I couldn't make the meeting, and so we just kept pushing. And we would revise the trial. Amory Bowler, who is now at Northwestern, was at Mayo with Heidi and doing her research, and she and I would talk daily about the writing the trial, and she did the, the majority of the heavy lifting on putting the trial together right. in, on paper. I guess if you added up all the man hours or woman hours that were involved with this, this was a year's solid worth of work Yeah, uh, by the time you look at it. Uh, it's something that I think the whole colorectal surgical society can be proud of. And and the results, I mean, I I thought your score, so you looked at not really long-term outcomes, they'll be coming out, but the the short-term outcomes on the quality of the specimen, which has been correlated with outcomes through really the Dutch trial and, and others, that the score looking at positive circumferential margins, completeness of the TME and the distal margin, showed that the open arm was a, a little bit better than the laparoscopic arm. Right. right. Designing a non-inferiority trial is not easy. Uh, you have to have clear-cut uh, endpoints, and you have to have a knowledge of what the difference can potentially be between the two arms that is clinically significant. Right. And there's some controversy over why we chose 6% difference. Uh, but if you look at every medical oncology trial that's done in the country, 6% is a clinically relevant difference. Right. So that's why we picked it. Yeah. Um, taking a composite of findings took into account the biology of the tumor. Circumferential radial margins can be positive based on tumor behavior as well as surgeon skill. Exactly. And we didn't want to ignore that. And then the completeness of the TME was something that was relatively new in our vocabulary. Uh, because originally when we started designing the trial, it was all circumferential radial margins and distal margins that we worried about. No one talked about the actual specimen, the way it looked. And the Europeans heavily influenced that decision. But it's interesting when you look at the results of the short-term outcomes from length of stay in hospital, they were exactly the same. Experience would have shown that there would have been at least a day difference between the open and laparoscopic arm, with the laparoscopic patients going home a day earlier. Was, is rectal cancer different than colon cancer? Because that's what we saw in colon cancer. They went home a little earlier. The patients that we selected had stage two or three rectal cancer. All of them got neoadjuvant radiation, and all of them had tumor within or below 12 centimeters above the anal verge, which ended up with them having a low anastomosis or having a abdominal perineal resection. So I'd say 96% of all patients who were in the trial had an ileostomy or a colostomy right. by the time we were done. 
I think that heavily influenced the length of stay. Ileostomy function delayed because of whatever, teaching patients how to take care of their stoma takes extra time. So I wouldn't put a whole lot of weight on the, on the similarity between the lengths of stay from this trial. And we were not pushing the, ben the short-term benefits of laparoscopy necessarily. We wanted to make sure we got the real picture on the quality of the operation. Right. At the time your trial came out, I think there, was, there were four trials now that have looked at laparoscopic versus open. And when we were compiling this for up-to-date, we found that sort of two showed that there was a bit of a benefit for open and two were essentially equivalent. Right. So tell us your taking all that information. Which, when a patient comes in to your office, T3, N1, rectal cancer, not really threatening the margin, medium-sized, and they get their neoadjuvant radiation. Which, in, in that patient where the anastomosis can be created but right at the pelvic floor, what's your, what's your uh, current practice? Well, I took, I took the finding very seriously. And I, having gone back and done some subset analysis of, this, of the data that hasn't been published yet, we saw that the areas where there was problems with the TME and problems with circumferential radial margins were all in the low rectal group, so below five centimeters. So if I have somebody who has a tumor that's below the middle of the rectum, low middle or low low, I do those in a hybrid fashion. So I'll do a laparoscopic mobilization of the splenic flexure, high ligation of the inferior mesenteric vein and artery, and then a fan and steel incision and do the dissection in the pelvis through an open approach using open technique. Now that hasn't eliminated the issues that we have with obese males with a narrow pelvis full of tight fat. And I think that's where top TME may actually be of benefit or even a, just to the old TATA, transanal transabdominal approach that uh, Jerry Marks uh, proposed a long time ago. Because what that does is it eliminates the issues with damage to the mesorectal fat plane in the low pelvis. You see it under direct vis uh, through the uh, anal canal after you enter the interstitial groove. And then you meet a dissection from above down into the low to the mid pelvis. That should eliminate some of that. Who knows what robotics are going to do? Right. You still don't have your best instrument, your educated fingers and hand, if you're doing robotics. So a hybrid approach is what I do now. I tell all my patients about the trial, but what we found and why I'm doing part of their operation through an open approach. And I strongly believe that eliminating a midline incision really benefits the patient in the long run. And what about the, when we talk about uh, value now in terms of because we're all going to be under financial pressure. I mean, we could talk about the medium and long-term out-of-hospital benefits of a larger incision versus a smaller incision. Because I think in the laparoscopic arm of almost every trial, you have to make an incision in part to get the specimen out, and people usually leverage that for their stapler to get like a, a curved contour, one of those other low stapler devices deep in the pelvis. With one firing. With one firing, as right. opposed to... What I always found a little bit disconcerting is when I saw the videos of people doing laparoscopic 
uh, procedures and coming across the rectum, usually at an angle, which we teach not to do, you should come across the perpendicular, and then with multiple firings, you have sort of two things working against the patient with that approach. So with a laparoscopic technique, you do your extraction incision, but you then leverage that for your better instrumentation for the yeah, and, then the, and then the anastomosis is done under direct vision. Right. It just makes it simpler. Yeah. I think it shortens the operation. Robotic has its own cost. I think that value is going to be uh, to the patient from any minimally invasive approach you take. They go back to work in two to four weeks. Uh, so if we're going to calculate value, you've got to look at that part, part as well. Right. Uh, how much does the economy suffer because you did something that takes eight weeks of rest and no work versus something that allows them back to work? We could talk about whether that's our own bias, yeah. whether patients yeah. can go back to work with a, certainly they become a computer programmer in, sure. when they oh, get yeah. home. It's yeah. more the steel worker that, that's yeah. tough. But that's, I think, is that a question that they're asking at your institution? Because they're beginning to ask it here in terms of you have these three techniques for colon resection and, and rectal resections. They don't tell us which way to do the case, but they are going to be asking us what's the financial calculus for each of the three techniques. And, and of course, the hospital is just interested in the hospital stay and the readmission, not necessarily whether they get back to work sooner or later. The ERAS program that we're running at Baylor now gives us contribution to profit margin and estimated cost. We, no one can give us a true cost. Yeah. But we, we have an estimation of what ERAS is saving us per patient, all elective colectomy, proctectomy cases. And it's about $1,000 a patient wow. compared to open or non-ERAS, I guess yeah. is what yeah. I would say. Yeah because we have open patients go on ERAS and they get the same benefit and they're gone in two days. Don't get me wrong, it works. The real question is equipment costs, length of time in the operating room, and those add up. And so you eliminate the margin that you established with the ERAS by doing high cost in the operating room. Yeah, with a longer, let's say, robotic case. You know, yes. extra, and I've seen all of the data shows at least an hour longer than than open and, and, and also laparoscopic cases have gotten pretty close to open case times, at least right. in our institution. Yes. Yeah. I think it was great. Where do we go next? What's the next trial that we have to do? You know, we mentioned this morning in Grand Rounds, we don't really have a handle on watch and wait. Uh, we don't have a handle on which cases should be considered for the total neoadjuvant therapy. Uh, we don't have a clear handle on type of radiation therapy we should be using, whether it should be short course or long course. We don't understand the contribution that robotics can potentially bring to the table on low rectal. Uh, we don't know where transanal TEM or transanal TME fit in, in the regimen or the algorithm. And we still have a local excision to consider here. If you can avoid an incision at all, maybe right. we should op work on optimizing the local excision area 
and eliminate a radical incision or radical resection altogether. Altogether. So that's seven trials that we have to do. And yeah. Yeah. Appreciate you coming up, and we will be seeing each other at meetings and you know discussing the future. So thanks, Jim. Thank you. Ron, that was really a great discussion by Dr. Fleshman. Let me hear your thoughts on, so where do we go next? Well, as we talked about with Jim, there's a lot of different directions you can take surgical trials. You can look at the process of the surgery, whether open, laparoscopic, or robotic is a good way to take out either a colon or a rectal cancer. There's a new technology called transanal TME, does that have any advantage uh, in a real way, in a realistic way, versus traditional top-down? This is sort of a bottom-up approach to taking out a rectal cancer. And I wonder if we can start looking at ways to extend the use of local excision. I mean, we're thinking about watch and wait protocols, but in between radical surgery and watch and wait protocols are local excision. And do we think about using preoperative chemotherapy and then local excision or preoperative chemoradiation therapy for tumors that are more than stage one and then local excision. So I think those four different uh, strategies are being discussed now and I think those are the way to go with the next set of trials. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. And You know, I think obviously you've been very experienced in the trials for the local excision being a part of the very initial trial and the more recent ACOSOG trial. Do you want to just give a little bit of top-line results for the ACOSOG? transanal trial that was done recently? When we started looking at local excision and whether it was a good substitute in early cancers for radical surgery, we came to the conclusion that for T1N0 cancers with a normal biology, a normal grade, were good candidates for just local excision alone. But patients with T2N0 cancers needed something more. We had given in the original trial post-op chemoradiation but then a trial which was uh, the principal investigator was Julio Garcia Aguilar from the Memorial Sloan Kettering. He actually reversed the order and gave chemoradiation therapy first for T2N zeros, and then we did a local excision. And those results were, were very good. They, uh, 72 patients were on the trial, and only two uh, had a local recurrence. Uh, there was a couple of distant recurrences as well. So I think it showed that it has excellent results and again, it's, whether it's better, you can't say, but it's not inferior to uh, radical surgery. So I think that seeing the long-term results of that study and then maybe extending the use to T3 and zeros is, I think, the next way to go. Right. No, I agree. I mean, obviously, there's patients who really want to avoid a colostomy, and that's certainly one approach. The other is thinking about watchful waiting. And, and where are we at, do you think, in, the, in trying to really understand where that's going to fit in? Well, the, the data is all over the place. It's been done uh, as a practice, mostly in Brazil, but now the other places are doing it. And I think we have to have a prospective, maybe not a phase three trial, because people aren't going to take radical surgery versus nothing. So I think we need to have at least a very good uh, follow-on or observational trial with patients that are clearly staged. And then we may get some information on which patients biologically are the ones that this is good for and which patients are not. I think that's going to be a real example of needing a multidisciplinary approach in developing the trial. You need involvement of surgeons, radiation oncologists, medical oncologists, radiologists, 
gastroenterologist because really understanding who should move forward with a watch and wait versus going forward with surgery is going to be really have to be carefully identified. Yes, yeah, so I think we have these traditional medical oncology sort of adjuvants to the radiation, and as we talked about in last month's episode, there are also then these new chemotherapy and immunotherapy medicines that are coming out that may make radiation therapy even more potent. So we're just going to have to wait and see. It's going to be a very exciting, almost a little volatile time over the next five to ten years as we sort of sort out what's the best trial and what's the best mix of therapies. Now let's move on to the question that we got in a recent episode regarding Lynch syndrome patients. So one of our listeners asked, is there a good substitute for colonoscopy and screening these patients, and particularly with the immune fecal uh, blood st- uh, fecal stool studies that have, have come out, which have been shown to be very sensitive and probably a little bit more specific than just the traditional fecal occult blood. Yeah, and so we turn to some of our experts here at the Dana-Farber Brigham Cancer Center, including Matt Yergelin, who you know certainly would be interested to be able to have other techniques for patients, but really the answer right now is a colonoscopy, because that is really the most sensitive way for Lynch syndrome patients to have appropriate surveillance screening after they've been identified as having Lynch syndrome. Right, and John Saltzman, who's head of our endoscopy unit, concurred, saying that it's a good screening method, but it's not as good as colonoscopy, and particularly with Lynch syndrome, those are the highest risk patients, so the yield from the colonoscopy is very high. Agree. Well, great. In our next episode, we are going to have a patient with anal cancer and talk about the issues with anal cancer treatment and HIV disease.